I'm, I feel really emotional actually about it because it was such a labour of love and obviously it's my, you know, my first home that I own and, well, own slash mortgage. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, is it really mine? <laughs> and yeah, it really does feel like a really special place. I think, you know, days feel so chaotic running a business sometimes that when you get home, it's just like this sigh of relief that you have a place that feels like it's yours. Mm. Yeah. Hello, welcome to Homing In, the podcast that explores the meaning of home in people's lives. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House. Today I'm chatting to a fellow entrepreneur, Rosh Matani, who's founder of the brilliant jewellery company Alighieri. We discuss her life story through the prism of the homes that she's lived in, so from humble beginnings in Zambia to the beautifully designed flat she now owns in Clerkenwell. When Roche first moved to London at the tender age of eight, uh, she was the only person of colour in her school, and this was a very, very difficult and formative time for her. She tells me how she's managed to channel this feeling of alienation towards a personal mission of bringing people together and celebrating commonality rather than difference. We talk about the importance of ritual at home and why she likes living on her own. We also discuss her suspicion of the colour green, the joy of negative space and why she imagines herself living in the desert as an old lady. Before we get going, just a quick nudge from me to please tap the follow button. We've got 15 episodes of the show recorded and waiting in the background ready to be released uh, and there are some absolute corkers in there so please do follow us and you'll be alerted as soon as a new one comes out. Thanks so much for that and on with the episode. Hope you enjoy it. I think, Rosh, I'd love to start actually just by moving straight into your first choice of, of, of living space, which is a home from your past, which is the flat in Zambia that you grew up in. Well, as mm. a small child, definitely. Um, I'm intrigued. What was it like? It was really simple. Um, it was a three-bedroom flat, and it had a little veranda and a courtyard outside where my dad used to have um, his little motorboat, and it was this kind of mustard yellow, very 70s colour and it had this like yellow tarpaulin over it. And I just remember like one of my earliest memories is like running out of the flat and going to hide under the tarpaulin and make my own little home in the boat oh, wow. and thinking like no one's, they're never going to find me and they're going to have to like send out a search party. And like, I loved that idea of like, <laughs> super dramatic, finding like little spaces and creating like mini fantasy worlds within them so it was a really simple home and upbringing but it was kind of like this fantasy land in which you could create your own little mini universes so yeah I have really fond memories of it well, did you could you find your own personal space in there or was it quite small yeah I had my bedroom and I was always I was I always had things on the wall I was always really particular about how I liked my bedroom but <laughs> go, on, go on what sort of thing <laughs> <laughs> just you know artwork but it was quite minimal to be fair I liked to have like one thing on the wall I didn't like it to be too crowded or messy I was always quite a minimalist in that that's amazing well what age are we talking here probably like six seven see that's quite unusual isn't it it's weird actually I probably drove my parents crazy because I was so particular yeah and like I don't know where it came from because my parents aren't really like that at all but like visually I'd always have Quite strong opinions about things Did you? <laughs> as a six-year-old yeah it's but it's kind of in there isn't it I think that's yeah. really interesting 
No, it is interesting. I used to collect kind of stones and shells and actually outside the house there were these, there was a wall of kind of circular little alcoves, I guess, kind of adjacent to each other and I used to hide things in them. They were like my little treasure chests. So yeah, it was always about creating these secret codes and meanings. Yeah. So what did your parents do at that point? My dad had a shoe shop and my mum helped him run his business. She was a secretary by trade, but she was kind of helping him and looking after us. So Really kind of humble upbringing. Was it happy? How do you look back on it? What do you think of when you think of that flat? It was really happy, actually. It was really innocent and magic. I think of it very much like magical realism almost. Like I used to kind of make paint out of leaves. And I remember my dad actually building kind of like a Swedish sauna and jacuzzi in the front yard and them spending ages like mapping it out. And actually, now that I'm talking about it, I suppose he did have quite a visual eye and he was very interested in design, but in a very kind of grassroots way. I remember him actually spending ages building that and planning it. And it was like Monday evenings, my parents used to go in there and we were like allowed to come sometimes into the sauna room and into the jacuzzi. So... No, it was really magical. It was super innocent. What about the food? What kind of food do you remember from that time? Oh, gosh. My mum used to cook every Monday. She used to cook Indian food. It was the tradition. On Monday, you have dal and rice. And my brother absolutely hated it. And we were, like, not allowed to leave the table until we'd finish our meal. (laughs) We used to do this thing where we'd kind of take the rice and, and the dal and, like, make it flat on the plate and then cut it into pizza slices. Pretend it was a pizza. My mum's like, this is just, (laughs) I don't even know what to do with this kind of like cultural misunderstanding of what's happening here. And it's funny now, she still makes it every Monday and I love it. It's one of my favourite meals. She still makes dal pizza. (laughs) Not the dal pizza. (laughs) She's like appalling. Your grandmother would be appalled. Yeah, so we ate, my mum used to cook a lot of Indian food, but also kind of Mexican food and Chinese food. I used to make everything from scratch. Like get your milk from the farm, like three streets away. And we'd go and get the milk and you'd have to make cheese from scratch like you couldn't really get anything back there so that's so funny this idea of kind of like farm to table being this kind of quite bougie concept but for me in my childhood it was just like that's just what you do and like you collect the coca-cola bottles at the end of the week and you take them back to the shop and yeah it's interesting to look back on it actually it was quite a wonderful way of living yeah 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 what about now are you into food now yeah definitely um I'm a terrible cook to the dismay of everyone <laughs> in my life. Um, but yeah, I love food, actually. I love, I think food's really similar to jewellery, actually, in the idea that it's all about bringing people together. And in every single culture, we use jewellery and food as a way to express kind of emotion and sentiment. And you hand down jewellery in the same way as you hand down recipes. Yeah, right. And I think that's quite amazing. That's kind of completely universal as a language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about your grandparents as well, because they were important to you, weren't they? Yeah. So both my sets of grandparents grew up in India, on the border of India and Pakistan. And when the countries were partitioned, they kind of lost everything overnight. And that's when they moved to Zambia and kind of started up from scratch. But there was a a really lovely community of people who'd emigrated from India and lots of Italians, actually. So a lot of my family friends were Italian. So I grew up kind of hearing Italian as a language, which I guess must have seeped in some way. Yeah, I mean, I was really, I was close to my grandparents in a kind of unspoken way in that there was always the language barrier because I didn't speak um, Hindi or Sindhi, which was their main language. So actually we used to communicate a lot through food. Right. Our way of showing love was through food. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And 
How do you think that those sort of early experiences of place, which are pretty different to what you have now, have shaped, you know, who you've become? Do, do you use it as a bit of a reference point for yourself? I think it's actually, yeah, it's been quite fundamental in that it made me, I'm the kind of person that thinks that anything is can be possible. Okay. And I'm sure in some ways that must have come from having this kind of childhood where, you know, it wasn't easy to you know, get paint, for instance. It's like, okay, well, how do we make our own paint? Or the idea of fantasy, I think, Mm. I'm sure that having that childhood really influenced that idea of going somewhere else in your head and creating kind of fantasy lands, which is, I guess, exactly what we tried to do at Alighieri. We tried to kind of bring people into a different universe and have that idea of adventure and Mm. possibility, I guess. Mm. So how old were you when you came to London? I was eight. Okay, what was that like? (laughs) (laughs) Quite turbulent, actually. Yeah, quite exciting. But I remember, you know, we came in August and I started school in September. And I just, it was just so different to everything that I knew. Zambia was very free and it was play. And I was kind of thrown into this, like, all-girls school in Hampstead and had to wear, like, this kind of... Hermit green coloured like skirt and blazer and beret and like and had like my hymn book and it was so cold. I just remember being so cold and feeling like it was like the most Victorian punishment that you had to play outside in the winter. I was like, how is this legal? I remember feeling like just so kind of out of my depth actually, because everything was so incredibly different and missing that kind of the heat and the smell of like the rain, the hot, the rain on the hot ground. Mm. And it was quite, it was a really big culture shock. I'd always, I'd come to London on summer holidays, but it took me a while to to adjust. But no, I think, you know, London always represented this idea of kind of excitement. And I remember being like fascinated with like escalators and museums, like all like playgrounds or infrastructure. So it was this kind of double-edged sword of all of the possibilities, but then it was quite scary as well at that age, I think. And everything, your whole world just changes. That's interesting. We so we took uh, aged four. We took our twins to um, Tate Modern mm-hmm. for the first time, and we realised that they hadn't seen an escalator before. And they both they got really quite thrown by this thing. But they, yeah. they're country mice, basically. So it's, <laughs> it's, 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 and we've and we because we had lockdowns and stuff, so they haven't really. Of course, yeah. Um, but yeah, I can only imagine. So what? So did you feel accepted when you got to London, or was it a bit of a battle? I found it really difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, at that time as well, I guess it must have been like 90, late, mid 90s. I guess I was the only person of colour at my school and I had, it took me a while to make friends and I had friends, but there was always that sense of kind of feeling other, yeah. which was definitely quite challenging. And mm. it's been actually, you know, in, in the last, oh, I'm 33 now, it's been in the last kind of three or four years that I've really stopped to reflect on that and mm. how formative that was. And I think actually going back to why I created Alighieri I think that played a big part of it like I wanted to create a universe where everyone was welcome and it was about kind of celebrating the fact that everyone's different and finding Mm. the things that we have in common rather than the things that the things that make us different but I suppose that's just part of growing up in general isn't it that kind of at that age you just want to be like your friends Mm. you want to look like your friends and wear what they're wearing and eat what they're eating and um and it's only as you grow older that you realize that actually your differences are exactly what make you unique as a person um no it was a definite journey to get there I was having a look at your website and I've never seen such a personal autobiographical take (laughs) on an about page before it's It's quite amazing and it 
Well, I mean, obviously, the first thing it says is Rosh Matani founded Alighieri to guide her through a dark time. And that's seriously setting your stall out from the beginning. But what is, tell us about that. Why Sometimes you... I'm like, why have I done this? Yeah, to yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's amazing. It's quite I, exposing, I it's but yeah, I think, you know, I wanted to be, just be honest about the fact that we all go through difficult things. And I think it's so important to talk about that because that idea of isolation and loneliness is so prevalent. And actually, you know, interestingly, like founded the brand eight and a half years ago and was talking about things like, you know, the fact that we're so consumed in technology that we don't have this kind of necessary physical contact and communication. And it was it's nuts because obviously the pandemic happened and then that became such a kind of thing. And it's almost like in some ways we needed the pandemic to realise just how important human connection is. But yeah, I just thought, you know, everything out there feels like it's designed to make you feel inadequate. And I wanted to create something that was about showing that it's okay to not be perfect. It's okay to not know what's going to happen or what you're going to do. And that actually, if we can all be a bit more open and honest about that, then we can help each other through it. And it's through those, I guess, it's like you make a friend through sharing a difficult experience, ultimately. T- tell me about your sense of purpose. I think for me, it's really about celebrating imperfection and human connection, creating this kind of universal language and bringing people together through this language of jewellery, telling people stories. I think, you know, people connect with these pieces in really emotional ways and they tell us why. I mean, one of our key pieces is the lion medallion, which I'm always wearing mine. It was kind of one of the first pieces that I made and it's inspired by the first canto of the Divine Comedy where Dante wakes up in the dark wood and he doesn't know where he is. He's super lost and he is confronted by this lion and the lion is kind of described as so terrifying that even the air around him is kind of trembling with fear it's the most beautiful description and he turns on his heel and says I can't do this I'm not hero he says I'm not St Paul I'm not Aeneas and that's when his guide Virgil appears and says Dante come on like get it together and so I kind of made this piece to remind me to be strong in a difficult time in my life. And it's still, we call it kind of the North Star of our brand and the purpose of our brand. And our customers, you know, they tell us why they're buying it and what they're going through. And it's, for me, it's us, it's about unlocking these stories for people and almost unlocking them for themselves and people who you'd never think. And they'd come in here and, you know, they just want, want a necklace and we tell them the story and then they open up and they discover something about themselves. And, and this is really emotional stories of, you know, parents, you know, last presents to their children before they before they, you know, pass away, or, you know, grandmothers buying it for themselves and their entire all the women and men in their family. And I, rem- I always remember in year one there was a girl who I think she was working in tech, she was one of our early customers. She bought the lion and then she emailed me the next day and said I went for a drink with my friend last night. Her boyfriend dumped her. I took my lion off and I gave it to her because she needed strength and courage more than me. Oh, wow. I need another one. And I remember for me, that was like, that's my purpose. Like bringing people together through this universal language. Amazing. What I find really interesting already is that you, you've described yourself as a perfectionist, but it's clearly about imperfection. <laughs> <laughs> so there's true. So, so there's a really good um, contrast going on there. But you... How do you characterise it aesthetically? You've talked about the story behind it, but Mm. what does it look like? It's kind of like molten gold. I call them kind of fragments. I want them to feel like they've been dug up from the ground and the earth and that they've had a past life. And 
therefore feel like they've been already passed down through a generation. I would say, you know, they're not trend-driven pieces. They're pieces that are designed to carry with you forever. But yeah, they're all molten and imperfect. As a lesson to myself, I say, I guess, a reminder to myself to stop. <laughs> it, is, it? it is, it's pure therapy. <laughs> My own personal therapy brand. Yeah. <laughs> so self-indulgent. But your colleague was telling us that actually you hand finish it all here, don't mm. you, in the studio? Yeah. That's amazing. We make everything here. We still make everything in the UK. And that, again, has been a really important part of the journey. There have been many times where everyone, a lot of people have said, you know, take it offshore, increase your margins, don't be an idiot. Yeah. But I think for me, it's always been so important to know the people who are making the pieces and have that kind of transparent supply chain and celebrate local manufacturing. Yeah. As a man, I'd love to ask you about men and jewellery because mm. I think it's actually a bit intimidating. It's interesting. Don't you think? It, I think it is quite... I, I, I love... I really love your jewellery. I'm not flanneling you. I, I, think <laughs> I think it's beautiful. And it's the kind of thing it. that I would wear. Um, but how do we kind of break down the barrier a bit for men? Don't, don't you think there is one there? I think it's fascinating. I think there's definitely a barrier there. I can see it already crumbling a little bit. Yeah. If we think about where we were, okay, eight years ago, I'll use my brother's litmus test because he's your like perfect example of someone. He's going to kill me. Okay, so eight years ago, I was like, would you ever wear this? And he was like, I think it's really cool, but I'd never wear it. I'd never wear a necklace. Like it has, I just don't feel confident enough to wear it. We had like a few guys who were very much like working in the fashion industry and already kind of really well versed in adorning themselves, which was amazing. And they were always buying it. But we then saw over the last three, four years, especially this real shift where guys come to us, they come in and they say exactly what you've said. I really love it. I really want a necklace, but I'm afraid. I don't know if I can pull it off. I don't know if it suits me. And kind of see this progression where they buy their first piece. And it often comes about where they maybe have bought it for a girlfriend or a friend and then it's this thing of like I'll oh, just try it on see if see and then people kind of fighting over the line medallion on the bedside table but I've really seen over the last two three years especially men feeling more confident to express themselves and to feel like jewelry can be part of their look and it always starts with like a chain a simple chain or like a small medallion and we've seen it grow massively over the last few years and then they feel more confident to come back and buy their second and do the layering thing but I think what's fascinating about it is that like jewellery has always been unisex. Like men have worn jewellery, pirates wore jewellery, and you know, yeah, yeah. if you look at kind of Renaissance paintings, men were always wearing jewellery and that idea of adornment and tribal jewellery, especially, you know, these talismanic pieces that you'd wear, like hunter-gatherers would wear to kind of ward off evil spirits, or even, you know, wearing their tools around their neck. Like jewellery has always been this part of kind of human history and I think actually it's really lovely to see us going back to that almost more primal state and I see it very much in the kind of breakdown of of this concept of gender in general I guess and the next generation feeling more confident to say well why do I have to decide who I am why can't I just wear what I want but it's nice to see kind of guys of my generation and all and the generation above also starting to feel a bit more confident with it I really think it's kind of moving in the right direction which feels really exciting you've convinced me I'm going to get some <laughs> Just a quick interlude to tell you that this podcast is sponsored by Vitsu. As many of you will know, Vitsu produces the brilliant 606 Universal Shelving System, designed by the legendary German designer Dieter Rams back in 1960. 
On this podcast, of course, we get to hear about people's family homes from yesteryear. Uh, and it's safe to say that interior styles have changed a bit since the early 60s. But Vitsu has amazingly remained a complete constant throughout, uh, unaffected by any trends or changes in lifestyle. And I think it's the very dictionary definition of a design classic. To find out more about this amazing shelving system, you can visit vitsu.com. That's V-I-T-S-O-E.com. Right, back to the podcast. Thank you, Rosh. Let's move on to your current home, which is your flat in, well, it's sort of Finsbury, isn't it? Clerkenwell. Clerkenwell, yeah. yeah. Tell me about this. I mean, I've seen pictures of it. And there's some on our website, a few. But it, it strikes me it's a bit of a sanctuary for you. Is that right? Yeah, it really is. I'm, I feel really emotional, actually, about it because it was such a labour of love. And obviously, it's my you know my first home that I own and, well, own slash mortgage. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, is it really mine? <laughs> and, yeah, it really does feel like a really special place. I think, you know, days feel so chaotic running a business sometimes that when you get home, it's just like this... Sigh of relief that you have a place that feels like it's yours. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So what does it do for you mentally? Like, how, how do you feel when you come home from a long day here? I feel really lucky. I feel so lucky that I have this space that I had the privilege to kind of create and make my own. I feel kind of surrounded by all of these artifacts and objects that I've collected on my travels. And, you know, actually, I can't often I can't help but think back to then living in Zambia and thinking about you know my parents and you know my dad grew up in a a two-bedroom house with his three siblings all sharing the same room and I just feel so incredibly lucky that I have Mm. had the opportunity to kind of create this really special place. Do you like being there alone? Are you there on your own sometimes? Mm, Yeah I'm always yeah I live on my own actually okay yeah I'm quite a solitary person and I quite like at the end of the day having time in my own head again going back to that idea of escapism yeah and yeah no I'm one of those people if I'm around people all the time I start to go a little bit crazy so I really love at the end of the day like having a glass of wine on the kitchen table like lighting my palo santo putting some music on and just kind of unwinding for a little bit why do you like being on your own Mm, good question because I think I can, I, I think I can be more creative when I have those kind of parentheses of time to just escape in my head. I don't know, actually, I've always been a bit like that. I think maybe it comes back to fantasy and escapism. And I guess some people get their energy from other people and other people get their energy from having to restore within themselves. And I think also for kind of being creative, I can't, if I don't have that, I can't think creatively at all. So you, you're an introvert, essentially. Yes, yeah. 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 Would you say you're an introvert? Yeah, I'm an introvert too. But it doesn't make sense, does it, if you're, you know, you're, essentially you're heading up a yeah. successful company with lots of people that depend on you. Yeah, so it's true. So how does true. that work? It's true. Well, that's why I think I kind of use up all my energy during the day and then I need to restore at night. Yeah. No, it is really interesting. But you, you do have to pretend a little bit as an introvert sometimes. I think when you're around a lot of people, you have to kind of put on your extrovert mask. That's probably why I like to be alone and <laughs> when I go home for a minute because I can just take that off for a second and yeah. breathe. Yes, exactly. Yeah. My mum said to me when I was young, she said the thing is that you never lose your shyness, but you just find ways of covering it up. I love that. It's true, though, isn't that's it? that's so true, isn't it? And people always like, you're not shy. And I'm like, no, I really am. 
Yeah, but it's funny, yeah. but people, yeah, I'm sure people don't recognize that in you if they don't know you very well, but yeah. the people that do, I'm sure will. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So, but how, so therefore, I mean, I'd like to ask you about ritual, which mm. I know is a bit of a grandiose word, but you've got a, you've got a bath in your bedroom, right? Yeah. So is it, tell me about your kind of daily rituals that, you know, cause we all have them to kind of keep yeah. ourselves a bit on the straight and narrow. What, what, how do you use the flat in that way? I'm really ritualistic as a person. I have kind of, I, I love I wouldn't say routine, but like a framework of kind of touch points in the day where it's like, this is the thing that I do. Yeah, little pillar stones. I guess the bath is a big part of it. In the morning, it's that kind of, again, like lighting Palo Santo, or actually we've just created our own kind of incense, which well, we'll be releasing soon, which we were inspired by kind of the smell of kind of frankincense and churches. Again, going back to ritual, church rituals. And so I'll kind of go and make my cup of coffee light an incense, have a cigarette. (laughs) Um, And then I'll have a bath in the morning. I like to start the day with kind of reading something or looking at one of my books. So I'm starting in like a creative way and then kind of delving into emails. And then, yeah, ending the day, it's the same thing. It's that kind of the incense, the lighting of the candle, the drawing of the bath, the pouring of a drink. And I guess, yeah, it's the kind of the same at the beginning, at the end of the day, actually, which those things are just really important to me and if I don't do them I feel a little bit off kilter yeah do you exercise as well I do when I have time I love doing yeah. pilates and kickboxing oh. which I try to make time kind of probably during the weekends more than during the week yeah the would you say the flat's minimal is that how you would describe it I mean it's there's no there's not much color in there right in mm. a nice in a nice yeah. way yeah it's interesting, I kind of, the tagline for Allegheria was modern heirlooms. And with, when we were designing, when I was designing it in the beginning, I always thought I want the jewellery to feel really like archaic and rich and full of texture. But I wanted the packaging and the graphic to be really minimal so that it could be this kind of blank canvas for which to kind of integrate these objects. And I think the house is really similar to that. So you're right, like it's super minimal in terms of the kind of the arches and the shelves and it's all kind of ecru, but then the objects themselves, these kind of terracotta things that I've collected on my travels and on my books. So I suppose it's kind of that clean palette. Quite wanted it to feel quite like a gallery, I guess, where the objects could, could be the hero. Okay. And then I guess one moment of colour in the kitchen with the kind of deep red Calcutta marble. But yeah, I'm minimal, but I'm also not minimal, if that makes sense. Yeah, fair enough. Well, it's better that way around, isn't it? Because if you've got a gallery-like space, you can change whatever's in it. however you feel yeah but I think you know even with the walls I like negative space so the idea of having like a wall full of paintings and artworks with not much space around really like really stresses me out okay so you could you don't think you could live in a brightly colored space no No. like that gives even you just saying that gives me anxiety (laughs) (laughs) I can't I mean it's funny we talk about like Instagram grid because everyone on the team's like you have to go full bleed to the square because get more gets more interaction we did it for like two weeks and then I kind of just went rogue and started putting the negative space back in because I'm like I can't do it I'm sorry like I tried I just can't do it yeah it's like space to breathe yeah I'm the same on Instagram as well (laughs) I don't care if it gets less likes at least I can like go to bed with a clear conscience yeah (laughs) that's a nice way of looking at it I like that negative space space to breathe but are you a tidy person then or if we open the cupboards does everything fall out I wouldn't I wouldn't open any of the cupboards (laughs) no And what about sound? Because I interviewed John Pawson on this podcast and it was fascinating because he said he has to have a fridge freezer behind at least two doors. 
so you can't hear it buzzing. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that's so interesting. But what, yeah, what, what, how do you feel about noise at home? I'm not a huge fan of noise pollution. I love like music, if it's my music, I'm, I'm really good with that. But anything that's like banging or loud, um, yeah, I'm quite, I find that actually quite hard to deal with. If it's like an ambient noise, like a fridge freezer, I don't think that would bother me so much. Um, Do you have good neighbours? They're all right, actually. They're okay, but one of them is now doing some building work, which is not <laughs> ideal. <laughs> At least we're not working from home anymore. Yeah. So you talked about some of the things you've collected. What kind of things have you got and why have you chosen those rather than other things? What is it about mm, them? I guess whenever I'm, I love going to flea markets and antique shops and Whenever I'm traveling, like that's the first thing I'll do is I'll look up like where is the nearest kind of flea market. And I love stumbling across things like in Colombia, I found these amazing like prehistoric fertility vases, which are just some of my absolute favorite things. I guess, again, it's about that kind of emotional connection. I'm quite kind of immediate about whether I like something or not. So like I can kind of like see it out of the corner of my eye and I'm like, I need that. Need. That's a need strong it. word. Need it. <laughs> or like, yeah, that's like belongs in my universe. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. It's like searching for treasure, isn't it? And it feels mm. like a little win whenever you find something in the midst of a garbage sale or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and I guess, yeah, they're memories and mementos of all the kind of places I've been and people I've met. Right. So it's about a human interaction in a way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think, think it's exactly. really important. Yeah, I agree. The, thing, the things that I always end up having around me are the things that either people have given to me or they remind me of a particular time with my family yeah. or, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's really special. I think it's so important in a home to have to be surrounded by fragments of those of the people that have kind of made you who you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You said that when you were a child you used to collect things mm. like what things like stones and stones. stuff right I had an extensive stone collection what, why to catalog them. Lots so lots of creatives do this, don't they? What is it? Why are you doing it? For me it was about believing I guess that inanimate objects have powers and meaning. The idea that it can bring you something, can bring you magic, magical powers as a child, or and maybe it kind of solidifies at a really young age that you've been somewhere, that you've done something. Yeah, that's a great question. Why? Because I guess, I mean, my brother didn't do that. My mum would never have done that. Yeah, so, yeah again, it's, it's, a, it's an impulse that you felt. It's about, I guess, feeling like you can find things in the world that make you feel like you belong, or that you are kind of yeah, that's such, such an interesting way of thinking about it. I've never stopped to ask myself, why would I have done that? It's, there's got to be something about biophilia in there, I think. Mm. So this idea that we need physical connection with the natural world. So mm -hmm. I can see you're kind of almost taking a piece of the earth and bringing it into your yeah. your own yeah. domain. I think it's so true. And it's so interesting going back to like children today and how rarely they actually have communication with well, physical objects because everything for them is so digital. Mm. Um because the other thing I do is, you know, write stories and have like we make notebooks and again that idea of the phys the tangible. Yeah. Have you been to Kettle's Yard in Cambridge? I love Kettle's Yard yeah. so much. What's amazing about that is the way that Jim Ede used pebbles and arranged them like artworks, and actually they were just as valuable to I him know. as a Barbara Hepworth or. Yeah, it feels so special. It's yeah. one of my favorite places. Yeah. yeah, that was actually a big inspiration for the house. Was it? Yeah, the idea of elevating the one stone. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, Against yeah. the negative space, isn't it? You also collect books, don't you? Yeah. What kind of thing? Collect old copies of the Divine Comedy. Of course um, you do. And I love old Japanese photography books, anything and everything, really. I'm a big Salvador Dali fan. So I love collecting, you know, old copies of, of everything he's created. One of, I have one of his old copies of uh, the cookbook that he created for his wife, which is oh, the wow. most eccentric thing you've ever seen. Yeah, I love that idea of amassing a library can you tell us about any of the recipes in there 
Can you remember? I think they're any? like I'd never attempted to cook any of them. <laughs> they're quite like I think like stuffed pheasants and hedgehogs feature heavily and <laughs> lobsters and absolutely like nuts things. Amazing. But we bought it actually when we went to visit his house in Cadaquez, which oh, right, is yeah. again one of the most beautiful and nuts places I've ever been. Lots of arches and whitewashed walls, but then the giant there's like a giant egg on the roof and yeah, it's such a crazy eccentric place, but super beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Do you collect the books to read them or is it partly about them as objects as well? I think both. I'd never yeah. buy a book that I wouldn't read. Yeah. But both, yeah. I guess. So are they are they displayed in the flat? Yeah, they're kind of all over the coffee tables and the shelves. Um yeah. They're, they're all, they're a, a reassuring presence. There's something about books, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. Um, actually, used to steal books from the library as a kid. Did you? Actually, I'm lying. I did it at university as well. Did you? And my mum made me go back when I graduated and give them all back. It was just that I didn't have time to return them. But I think there's yeah, still yeah. a few of them on my shelf with like the library stickers. And I'm like, I hope I'm not going to get found out one day. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a very good library system if they didn't notice. No. <laughs> I suspect that happens in our office quite a lot, by the way. I'm sure. <laughs> um, um, just the last question on this flat. Does it does the space work well for having others in it? Because you live there on your own, but do you also have people around quite a lot? Yeah, I love to do big dinner parties. It's quite kind of open plan, so the kitchen and living room kind of flow into each other. So yeah, dinner parties are a big thing in the flat. And what would you cook? A pa- pasta. Pasta. <laughs> <laughs> Very rustic Italian pasta. Um, yeah. Really, one of my favourite places is this Italian deli called Terroni, like around the corner. It's London's kind of oldest Italian deli and they make the most amazing fresh pasta. So oh, wow. on the way home, you buy the pasta, you buy the sauce and then you pretend you made it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my, my when I was young, my parents went to dinner with the parents of a, another kid from my class and I had a really nice time. And my mum popped out to go to the loo, popped out of the room, and she bumped into this kid who was my friend and said, wow, your mum's such a good cook, you know, <laughs> like, has she always cooked like this? And he said, no, the next door neighbour made it. And she, <laughs> <laughs> and she went round and picked it up earlier. That's so And she brilliant. got totally stitched up, but she didn't, she hadn't said anything about it. That's so brilliant. But I think if you can get away with it, it's fair enough. I don't think I do. Everyone's like, we know you didn't make this, so stop <laughs> pretending. <laughs> Excellent. So your last choice is essentially a kind of dream-like space or a sort of home of the future, as we mm. call it, which is Frey House 2 in Palm Springs in California, which was designed by Albert Frey. It's a, I mean, it is amazing. It's, it's a kind incredible. of masterpiece of desert modernism, I think they called it. Yeah. Tell us about this. Why have you chosen it? It's just been a place that I've looked at visually for so long. I've kind of have it all, on all my inspiration boards and... Like it's built into a rock. <laughs> the house is built into a rock. And I just think it's just the absolute combination of fantasy and what you'd do as a kid, right? Like you'd build a home, you'd create a fort inside a mm. cave. Mm. And I just love the juxtaposition of that kind of red rock with then the linear glass and 
I think it's that's the ultimate expression of that balance between old and new yeah. and delving into the earth, but still being propelled into the future and light as well. I think, you know, having mm. that all of that light flowing through, that's a big thing for me. I absolutely love natural light. And I've always been fascinated by the desert as well. That idea of, it feels like a mirage, doesn't it? Yeah. Have you been to Palm Springs? I haven't. No, yeah. it's on my list. Went out to LA earlier this year and went out to Joshua Tree, which was amazing. Was hoping to make it to Palm Springs, but ran out of time. Yeah, because that there's a, there's this massive kind of boulder that, as you say, just comes right into the space, mm. and it actually also acts as a divider, doesn't it, between yeah. the sleeping and the sitting yeah. spaces. Yeah. So it's yeah, there's, it's pretty elemental. Yeah, elemental such a good word. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> what about Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water as well? Are yes, you a fan of that? Yeah. So it's a similar idea in a way. Mm, I think it's that like using nature and integrating with nature so seamlessly yeah what about the color have you seen the colors in there because you know he paints so he painted the the corrugated metal roof oh yes he painted like sky blue yeah. so it feels like you're looking up at the sky and then the curtains are in this specific yellow that match the spring flowers that come up outside yeah i mean i like it visually i couldn't live in it why not it's too right i have this thing about <laughs> so because it's because of the color of the green, like it's too green. It's like this kind of blade blade grass green. I don't know what it is about that color that just really stresses me out. Maybe because I didn't grow up with it in Africa. Like everything was quite like scorched colors of like that rusty red. And then if there was a green, it was more kind of, yeah, no, there was not that kind of bright green. Yeah, yeah. And there's something about that color that really like, makes me feel quite stressed that's so interesting i love pastel like wes anderson colors yeah pastel pinks and quite 70s kind of um mustard pastel blues i love that but anything that's kind of too bright um that's so interesting i don't know why well the, well hence why you've chosen this house because it's that classic yeah. sun bleached kind yeah. of thing yeah maybe it's that's like fading of time because that's what the sun does isn't it to yeah as you say it's that idea that it feels like it's already existed whereas maybe that green feels too new well in relation to the light i don't know if you read this but he apparently he, he spent 12 months tracking the movement of the sun i had read that yeah insane uh, so that he could put the windows in exactly the right places and also get the overhangs right so it wasn't too bright amazing too um, amazing and it's it took him five years to find the site as well i think it's just absolutely incredible isn't it and was the highest house in palm springs at the time i didn't know he basically that. looked up at the mountain and thought oh, maybe I could build a house up there and I think people thought he was a bit crackers but I think it's that as well someone having the brilliance just be like I'm gonna do that and everyone thinking they're mad and then yeah yeah so tell us about the space because it's only 800 square feet mm. is it would that be enough for you I think so I love the idea of one day kind of living in this really rudimentary way without any things do you maybe like a few books and yeah, I think I love the idea because whenever I travel, because mostly I'm traveling for sh for work and for shoots, I'm always encumbered with things. And I realize this is a weird thing to say as someone who sells things for a living, but small <laughs> things that you can wear. Yeah. But I it's a dream one day to just go away somewhere with like nothing but the clothes on my back and just survive. And that idea that you don't actually need like that as well. Maybe it's like I wear the same things on repeat. I don't like having too much stuff. Do you? Because it's not real. So have you got a small wardrobe? It is a very small wardrobe, actually. I have too many things in it. I need to do a purge soon. Storage is the worst problem in any house, I yeah. think. Not enough of it. But do you have like, do you have a bit of a uniform that you wear so that you know mm. where you are? 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm always in kind of quite minimal, like pair of like cigarette trousers that I always wear, a few slip dresses, pair of old Levi's, yeah. lots of white t-shirts. Again, I'd like to think of the outfit as kind of like a canvas for the jewellery. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So getting back to the house, it, obviously it's got amazing views from up there. Do you like that idea? Do you like the idea of having a vista? Yeah. I love that idea of just seeing this kind of vast expanse of nothingness. Yeah. It's like being on the open road, isn't it? Yes, it is very much so. And what about the amount of nature that you get there? Would that's would I you be okay that. with it? Yeah. I love nature. It's just about I think I love like nature that feels exotic or that feels different to England and heat, that like scorching heat. Yes, exactly. the shimmering mm. that goes on. But he made friends with a foot long lizard. <laughs> apparently that's that, crazy. that came to visit him yeah, and I think that, that there's all sorts of coyotes and <laughs> so... hadn't thought that part through <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly... are you a fan of modernism in general though yeah what? no I am I am I like healthy balance between modernism and archaic yeah did you go when you're in Los Angeles, did you visit any of the kind of the Eames house and stuff Sadly, like that? Sadly, I had no time to do any of that. We were yeah. we were doing a, a part, we were partnering with Freeze to do a, a pop up and uh, a collaboration with an artist. He's an amazing Brazilian artist called Samuel de Saboya, and I really loved his work and I loved him as a person. He's just this most incredible spiritual genius, but all of his work is color. Yeah. And we spent 10 days creating this space together. He was painting kind of essentially these murals on the wall. And all of my, the idea was he would take five things that were part of my universe and incorporate them in his work. And he'd kind of symbiotically create this space that was all about healing and ritual through art. I'll send you pictures of it because it is so colorful. And it was this insane process of like every day he'd paint and he'd let me like prime the walls for him, which was incredible. And every day I'd be like, oh, like maybe we can like go a bit more neutral, go a bit more pastel. And he is all about these kind of big colors. And it was really, it was an amazing like process because I felt such anxiety through it. But by the end, it was this piece of work that was, I'd never thought that I'd fall in love with something like that. But Mm. the process of creating it with him and going into his world and seeing it through his eyes was was amazing and actually on the last day when we opened when we finished painting and we were just doing our opening Lewis on our team said to Samuel you know you know Rosh actually hates colors and he was like what like why like he was like no wonder you kept saying like maybe just like a bit more pink but I ended up loving it and it was a really good lesson in actually like not being too closed off sometimes with Mm. these fixed ideas of what you think you like and what you think you don't like I think it's also important to be open totally agree and colour is very contextual isn't it so actually in this Albert Frey house the the colours, I mean, they are slightly washed out, but they're, they're, those, they're those desert modernism colours. Yeah. Like, if you were to have a book called Desert Modernism, <laughs> the cover would be, like, that yellow yeah. and a pink. Yeah. And um, and they just work in that context. So I want you just to imagine yourself as an old lady. I already feel like an old lady. <laughs> okay, even older. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of place do you think you'd be living in? How would you like it to be? I'd love to be, like, Georgia O'Keeffe in the middle of the desert and just be surrounded by that kind of red sand and all of my all of the things that I've amassed in my life I suppose contradictory to what I said earlier of having no things but all my books and everything neatly catalogued would be really nice as well yeah I imagine myself being somewhere hot and in nature in the desert that's the dream yeah so so if that's the dream 
you're living in central London at the moment. <laughs> you're quite a way away from yeah. it. I mean, clearly there's a, you know, there's a business need for this, right? Yeah. But when could you see that happening? I don't know. I think maybe half, like, it would be lovely to try and start doing maybe in like three, four years, half the year in London and then half the year spend the winter months somewhere remote and maybe a different place each time because I think you know to keep building the brand I think it's so important as you grow a business you sometimes get so entrenched in the logistics and Mm -hmm. the building of the infrastructure that you stop doing the things that gave you the inspiration in the first place and I'm on a mission now to really start like freeing up more time to be able to go out and see things and travel again to make sure that you still feel inspired to create new things yeah Fascinating, Rosh. Thank you. Thank you. I think I'll just leave it there. I really enjoyed it. Oh, sorry. I hope I didn't blabber on too much. No, it's so good. (laughs) It's so good. Thank you very much. No, thank you. It's been so lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you all enjoyed hearing from Rosh. As always, do take a look at the Modern House website uh, and we'll post up some photos on there. Uh, You can follow the link in the show notes or visit themodernhouse.com. This episode was produced by Hannah Phillips and edited by Oscar Crawford. The music is by Father. Thank you again so much for being here. We really do appreciate it uh, and talk to you all next time. Bye for now.